Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be back with you in Syracuse. Thanks so much for worshiping with us today. And I just want to say that if it's your first time here, we're excited that you're with us. We hope you feel very welcome today. Uh, we hope that we're able to help you pursue God today. My name is John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor up at the Alpine Logan campus, and it's an honor to be back in Syracuse today and to be able to worship with you guys and share God's Word. And we are digging into the second week of our series called The Prodigal. And in this series, we're looking at maybe the most famous parable in the Bible, if, if not the most, certainly one of the most famous parables, the parable of the prodigal son. And in this series, we are looking at the three main characters of the story, the younger son, the father, and the older brother. And so today, we're focusing on the father. Next week, we're going to look at the older brother. And last week, we introduced to you kind of the big idea for this series, and that is this. If you are far from God, no matter how far, there's still hope for you. If you missed last week, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that message or watch that message online because we need to be reminded of that. That is so foundational to the character of God. I firmly believe that some of you are here today because you need to hear that. Because you need to know that God's grace and forgiveness are bigger than any mistakes that you've made. You need to know that God is pursuing you. The fact that you're even here today is evidence that God is pursuing you. Now, you might say, well, I'm only here because my wife wanted me to be here. Or I'm only here because my mom and dad didn't give me a choice. I had to be here. Well, I would say even through those circumstances, God is pursuing you. God is drawing you to himself. In last week's message, we also introduced this idea of rule breakers and rule keepers. I hope you've had some conversations this week with your family or with your small group or your mentor about kind of where you are on that spectrum. I'm a, I'm a rule keeper. Now, if you have teenagers like I do, you may want to think that all kids are rule breakers. <laughs> They're not. Some of our kids are also rule keepers. And one of the things that we're going to discover in this series is that no matter whether you're a rule keeper or a rule breaker, you could be far from God. There are a lot of rule keepers who are far from God. And that's one of the points Jesus was trying to carry across to the Pharisees as he taught this parable. The other thing I want to quickly review is just the definition of the word prodigal. It's spending money or resources freely and recklessly. Extravagant wastefulness. See, I grew up in the church, and so I grew up hearing this prodigal, or hearing this parable, excuse me, over and over again. And really, up until about three weeks ago, I thought the word prodigal meant wayward or rebellious. It wasn't until about three years ago, I was really digging into this, that I saw that prodigal actually is reckless. It's extravagant. And so from that standpoint, we're going to see that not only was the son prodigal, the son certainly was prodigal. He took all of his inheritance, and he squandered it on wild living. It's the very definition of prodigal. But we're also going to see that the father was a prodigal because the father loved his son recklessly. The father loved his son with extravagance. So let's jump in. We're going to start in verses 1 and 2. So Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, it says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners, these would be the rule breakers, often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law, the rule keepers, complain. 
that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. I think it's really interesting if we were to back up just a little bit into Luke chapter 14, we would see that Jesus had just really challenged his followers to count the cost of following him. And then verse 15 in some translations starts off with the word then. It says, then the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. The NLT translation we use here on Sunday says they often came to hear him. I find it's interesting that in response to Jesus' challenge in chapter 14, that didn't drive them away. In fact, it drew them to Jesus even more, and the Pharisees didn't like it. They started complaining that Jesus would spend his time with notorious sinners, that he would eat with them. So this is a reminder to us that Jesus didn't just teach. Jesus got involved in their lives. Jesus fellowshiped with them. He ate with them. I think this should be instructive to you and me as we seek to lead people to Jesus, that we need to get involved in their lives. They're not just looking for teachers, right? You may have heard the the phrase, nobody cares what you know until they know that you care. Let's be engaged. See, the religious leaders were not like that at all. They made a very clear differentiation between the righteous and the unclean. And they didn't want anything to do with the unclean. In fact, they prided themselves on not associating with people who were unclean. There were some rabbis in Jesus' time who took that to such an extreme, they wouldn't even teach the Word of God to someone they deemed unclean. That is so far from the heart of God. And that's one of the things Jesus wants to try and get across to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So that's going to bring us to the first thing that we see in regards to the prodigal. The father chases down those who are lost. Luke 15, 3 through 4. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? So it's in response to this complaining by the Pharisees and the religious leaders that Jesus teaches three parables in Luke chapter 15. It starts out in verse 3, it says, So Jesus told them this story. In other words, the parables are really directed at the religious leaders, at the Pharisees. He wants to get this point across. And like most parables, this is a story that everyone could relate to. Right? In that culture, almost everyone had sheep. And if you didn't have sheep, you certainly knew someone who had sheep. So this was a very relatable story. And he tells the story in such a way that it's almost like it's common sense that you would leave the 99 to go find the one. Right? The way he says it, he says, if a man has 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others to find the one in the wilderness? It's kind of like Jesus saying, you already know the answer to this because you've experienced this. Isn't this what you do when one gets lost? And it's not that the lost sheep is any more valuable than the other 99. But he's not any less valuable either. The lost sheep has just as much value as the 99. See, Jesus is using an earthly story to reveal a spiritual truth. Because the Pharisees could get it. They could understand that the lost sheep was just as valuable as the 99 who were found, but they couldn't make the connection that the notorious sinners 
the people who were far from God were just as valuable to God as the ones who were close. I'm so grateful that God searches for us. I'm so grateful that God is a God who pursues. And we talk all the time at Alpine about pursuing God, but the only reason we can pursue Him is because He first pursued us. You know, Jesus said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus seeks. He takes initiative. I'm so glad that He does that. Then Jesus tells a second parable to reinforce this idea of value and finding something that is lost. So in verse 8 he says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? This is another parable that everyone can relate to. We've all lost something of value. Anybody else notice that the older you get, the more you tend to lose valuable things? Like, I'm losing stuff way more often than I used to. Anytime I leave the house, there are basically four things I have to have with me. My wallet, my phone, my keys, and my laptop. And so if I'm trying to get out of the house and I can find three of those things, but one of them is missing, I take the three that I have and I put them on the dining room table so now I know where they are. I don't lose them again. And then I turn all my attention to finding the one thing that is lost. It doesn't make that one thing any more valuable than the others. It's just I know where the others are. I know they're safe. I know that they're found. And then I'll ask my wife, have you seen it? I ask my kids, have you seen it? And I like to blame it on my kids, right? What have you done with the keys? They didn't do anything with the keys. I just lost them someplace. And then more often than not, it's been in my pocket the whole time, which is really disheartening. Maybe that's happened to you guys. But see, in, parable, in the parable, all ten coins are silver. Again, it's not like the one that's lost is more valuable than the others. It's not a gold coin that's lost, but it's not any less valuable either. So do we see people who are far from God as just as valuable as those that are pursuing God? Or do we tend to look at people like the religious leaders did? And we look at someone who maybe is caught in an addictive behavior, or maybe they've actually faced criminal punishment Maybe they're a notorious sinner. And do we assume they're somehow less valuable to God? See, God's Word says that every person is made in the image of God. Believers and non-believers alike. Rule keepers and rule breakers. And as such, they have immeasurable worth and value. Let's keep going. Jesus is going to get back into the actual parable of the prodigal son now. So in verse 20, he says, So he, this is the prodigal son, so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. It says, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him coming. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say this, so I just want to make sure everybody's clear. This is just my opinion. But I think the reason he saw him a long way off is I think every day, if not multiple times a day, the father was scanning the horizon. The father was looking and hoping maybe this is the day that he'll come back. And when he saw him, it says he was filled with love and compassion. He ran to him, he kissed him, and he embraced him. Now, there are several cultural implications here that we probably would just miss if we just read over. So I, I want to highlight a couple of them. First, it would have been extremely rare for a man in that culture to run anywhere. It was taboo. They didn't do it. They didn't run. 
I, I miss that culture. Like, I don't get how you guys can just run to run. I don't, I don't understand it. One of the reasons they didn't run is because to run fast, he would have had to pull up his robe and kind of gather it around his legs to run. That would have been dishonorable for the father. The second thing is that when that younger son left with the inheritance, he brought shame on the whole family, not just himself. So the father and the older brother had been dishonored when the younger son took the money and left. Now, we don't really live in a shame-honor culture here in the United States, so it's kind of hard for us to get our mind around that. But both the older brother and the dad would have been dishonored. Third and finally, the younger son had worked with pigs. So if you know anything about Jewish culture, that would have made the younger son ceremonially unclean. Now, we don't know exactly how far he traveled when it says he went to a distant land. We don't know how long it took him to travel back. It's probably multiple days, so we don't know for sure if he was still ceremonially unclean when the father ran out to him. But if he was, when the father embraced him and kissed him, that made the father unclean. And again, if you know anything about Jewish culture, there was no way a devout Jew would want to be unclean, but the father didn't care. The father loved him recklessly. He loved him with extravagance. He was willing to bear the consequences of running to his son and shower him with affection. I love that the father ran to him. I love that the father didn't hang out on the porch and say, nope, he's got to come all the way to me begging and groveling. He ran to him. Now, he didn't run to him until there was repentance. I want to talk about that for just a minute. Last week we talked about repentance. There are are two different ideas behind repentance in the Bible that we see often. Number one is, is the Greek word metanoia, which means a changing of the mind. There's also a word that means to turn around from, to basically do a 180, to go in the opposite direction. And we see the son did both. The prodigal son repented. The prodigal son, it says, he came to his senses. He had a changing of the mind. And then when he had that changing of the mind, he turned 180 degrees and went back to where he had come from. And when he did that, the father ran to him. See, the father didn't pull him out of the pig pen. The father seeks. The father pursues. The father doesn't force. It's the same with us. God seeks us. God pursues us. God doesn't force us to follow him. But when we repent, when we come to our senses and we say, I was wrong, God, I agree with you, that was sinful. When we make that 180-degree turn, God runs to us with open arms. He sprints to us, and he hugs us, and he kisses us, and he calls us his children. I recognize as I share this parable, it might be difficult for some of you, because maybe some of you have played the role of the prodigal son. Maybe some of you have made some decisions that alienated you from your parents. And maybe you have repented, and maybe you've tried to come back, but they didn't come running to you with open arms. They haven't forgiven you yet. If that describes you, I would just say, I want you to know that God grieves with you and God grieves for you. Hang in there. Keep praying for your parents. Keep praying that God would soften their hearts. If you're communicating with them, keep honoring them in the way that you talk to them and the way that you talk about them. Or maybe you find yourself on the other side. Maybe you're the parent and you have a prodigal who's wandered away and you're looking on the horizon every day, but they haven't come back. And I just want you to know that God grieves with you. And I can't promise you that you'll reconcile with your parents or with your child. Only God knows that. But I can promise you this. He is sufficient. He is with you through that, and he is enough. And he loves you, and he embraces you. I want to look at the second point that we see 
about the prodigal father. That's that the father responds with joy when a sinner repents. So verse 5 and 6, now we're back to the story about the lost sheep. Jesus says, and when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I love the father's attitude when he finds the sheep. He doesn't gripe and complain about how stupid the sheep was for getting lost. He doesn't whine about all the wasted time he spent trying to find that sheep. He doesn't drive it back to the flock with his staff, hitting it along the way. It says he joyfully carries the sheep. Jesus carries his people when he finds them. See, often when we've wandered, we are overcome with grief and shame. We're we're at our worst. We don't have any sense of direction because we haven't been led by the Spirit of God. We're malnourished because we haven't been feeding on the Word of God. We don't have any stamina or endurance because we haven't been built into by the people of God. And in that time, in that case, the Good Shepherd picks us up and He throws us on His shoulders and He joyfully carries us back to the flock. What an amazing Savior we serve. And when He gets us back home, it says that He celebrates We see it in this story, and we see it again in the story with the woman who lost the coins. Jesus said, and when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Again, we see this theme of rejoicing when the lost is now found. And then people get invited to be a part of the party. Do you know God invites you to be a part of the party? As a follower of Christ, I hope that we're rejoicing when people come to Jesus. Because Jesus says, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. It's like one big party in heaven every time God's kingdom is built, even if it's only built by one person. Man, I hope the culture of Alpine Church is like that. I hope we have a culture that we celebrate and we rejoice when even one sinner repents, no matter what their backstory is. No matter how far they may have wandered from God, no matter what they may have done, I hope that when they come to Jesus and they have that new creation, that new life, that we celebrate, that we rejoice. I really believe we're in a season of harvest right now in Utah. I've lived here for over 30 years. And I can remember year after year after year when I would talk to one or maybe two people in an entire year who would come to know Jesus. I talk to people every week now who have come to know the biblical Jesus, who have put their faith in what he did at the cross. And man, it's exciting. You and I are privileged to be in a time in a place where God is on the move, and I hope we're excited about it. I hope we're taking part in it. I hope that we're partying when people come to Christ. I want to cover one last point about how the father responds when his son comes home. The father is recklessly extravagant towards his children. 15, 22 through 24, it says, But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And I love this last line. So the party began. I want to read some commentary to you that I think again gives us a little bit of cultural insight to what is going on. 
It says the best robe in the house would have belonged to the father himself. And the ring would probably be a family signet ring and would symbolize reinstatement to sonship in a well-to-do house. Slaves or impoverished workers often did not wear sandals, though as here they carried and tied a master's sandals. So the father is saying, no, I won't receive you back as a servant. I'll receive you only as a son. You read this part of the story, and if you grew up with a dad who was an extravagant gift giver, it probably brings back some good memories. Might even put a smile on your face. You know, I was fortunate enough to have a dad that was an extravagant gift giver. Uh, my dad passed away about two weeks ago. I did his funeral last Saturday, and I was privileged to give part of the message at his funeral. And one of the things that I shared was things that I learned from my dad. And one of the things I learned was how to be an extravagant gift giver. I shared a story about how one year when I was in about fifth grade, we were living in this little hick town in Florida called Wachula, and we were dirt poor. We lived in a house that we rented that was basically donated to us by a member of the church. At night, you could, you could lay in bed and you'd hear the mice running in the attic over your head. I mean, it was, it was not great times. We ate a lot of government cheese and a lot of rice back then. And I was old enough to know that we didn't have any money, and I was old enough to know that Christmas was going to be pretty bleak. And I remember walking down and looking under the tree that year, and we had three brand-new bicycles, one for me, two for my sisters, and then a tricycle for my youngest sister. And I have no idea who my dad begged, borrowed, or stole from to make that happen, but it blew our minds at how extravagantly he gave, even though when I knew times were tough. The prodigal father is an extravagant gift giver. It says he brought in the finest robe. He brought in a ring and he put it on his finger. He said, let's have a feast. Let's take the calf that we've been fattening and we're going to celebrate because my son was dead and now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. See, when the, when the younger son left, the dad probably thought he'd never see him again. When he left, he was, he was dead to the father. It wasn't like he could just jump on FaceTime or Skype or get on a Google Meet and talk to him. He couldn't jump in a car or hop on a plane and come visit. And the father knew the son was going to squander the wealth. He knew he was going to become destitute. The father wasn't stupid. The father knew the son had issues with self-control. That's why he asked for the money ahead of time. He couldn't wait until the normal time to get the money. So the dad knew there's a pretty darn good chance he's going to blow it all. But now he's back. In a real sense, it was like he was back from the dead and the father had to celebrate. There's also a spiritual application to this when you and I come to the father through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says this, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. The wages of sin is death. In Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 it says, But... Because of his great love for us, God, who, in his, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. It is the extravagant gift of God the Father, his grace, through the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, that we're saved. Now, you may have a story way cooler than my Christmas bicycle story about how your dad was extravagant. Or maybe you weren't fortunate enough to have a parent who was an extravagant gift giver. But any story we would have pales in comparison to the extravagance we see at the cross. <laughs> Where God the Father gave His Son to pay the penalty that you and I should have paid. 
See, we were dead in our, in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins. The Bible says, again, the wages of sin is death, and every one of us is guilty of it. Every one of us has chosen to follow our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own emotions, instead of what God declared to be true, and he would have been just to leave us there. But in his mercy and his kindness and his extravagant love, he sent Jesus, who came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't, and he went to the cross, and on the cross, he bore our guilt and he bore our shame. Again, the Father doesn't force. The Father pursues, the Father seeks, the Father doesn't force. But when you and I repent, when you and I come to our right mind, when we gain our senses and we turn and say, Jesus, I'm broken. I need a Savior. I can't do this, and I certainly can't do it on my own. I trust in what you did on the cross. I don't even really deserve to be your servant, but Jesus, would you take me as your slave? God the Father says, you won't only be my bondservant. You're now a son or daughter of the living God. John 1.12 says it like this, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. It mirrors the prodigal story almost exactly. That as we repent, as we come to Christ, as we say, Christ, I want to be your servant. Jesus says, you're not just my servant, you're my son or my daughter. And then he rejoices. Says that God rejoices when we come to him. Now, i got to be honest with you, it's hard for my peanut brain to comprehend how that works. Because it's not like God's surprised. He's omniscient. God already knows who's going to come to him, who's going to respond to his call, and who isn't. So it doesn't surprise him. But somehow in that, he still rejoices. He rejoices over you. We see that in this story. We also see that he rejoices over you in Isaiah 62.5 and Zephaniah 3.17. So if that's new to you today, if you've never thought that God the Father rejoices over you, if you've never thought of him running after you and pursuing you with arms open wide, we would love to talk with you about that. We'll have leaders here after the service who would love to answer your questions, who'd love to pray with you. I want to wrap this up with one last passage Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and he's filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. This is a psalm of David. Who better to talk about God's compassion and mercy than David? Who better to sing about it? David certainly experienced God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's extravagant love. David also experienced God's anger. Notice the psalm doesn't say God doesn't get angry. It says he is slow to anger that he doesn't stay angry with us. David recognized that we deserve to be treated much more harshly than God treats us for our sin. And then I love that, that David started to get a glimpse from just how high God's love was for him. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for us, for those who fear him. Guys, I think so often you and I underestimate the love of God. We underestimate just how reckless he is in his love towards us. David then talks about the magnitude of God's forgiveness. He says, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. I want to read a little bit of commentary on that that just gave me a ton of encouragement. I hope it will to you. 
It says, as the east and the west can never meet in one point, but be forever at the same distance from each other, so our sins and their decreed punishment are removed to an eternal distance by his mercy. This is the God who loves you extravagantly. This is the God who runs to you with open arms. This is the God we worship. This is the God we serve. This is the God we want to honor. A God who loves us with extravagance. So my challenge to you and my challenge to me as we leave here that we would love him the same way. That we would love God extravagantly. That we would love his people extravagantly. And that we would go love the lost sheep extravagantly. Let's pray. God, we are just so grateful that you love us in a way that you pursue us, that you meet us where we are, that when we have that changing of the mind, we recognize we need you. When we turn around and start to come towards you, you rush to meet us there. And so, God, I just thank you for that. God, I want to pray for two groups of people here today. Number one, I want to pray for those who might identify as the lost sheep. God, maybe they're overcome with guilt and shame. And maybe they don't know how to find their way back. God, I pray that they would know that it's it's not about them finding their way back. It's about them just recognizing they need the good shepherd. It's about them asking Jesus to come in and change them, to save them, to confess their sins, and that Jesus will meet them where they are, and then he'll joyfully put them on his shoulders and carry them. God, for those of us who were part of the 99 who are near to you, who are pursuing you, who love you. God, would you give us a heart for the lost like you have? We all have somebody in our life right now that we know is far from you. God, I just pray that we'd have the courage this week to reach out. It could be a text, just a text. Hey, how you doing this week? How can I pray for you? It could be a phone call. Hey, I've been thinking about you, brother. How you doing? How, what, what's going on in your life? God, would we pursue the lost like you do? And we thank you that you go before us in that, that we're not doing it on our own. And we lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen.